Alright, welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the Art and Art History Podcast with someone who has absolutely no background in either topic. And speaking of no background, uh, if you haven't noticed yet, that's probably a good thing, but I have absolutely no idea what the hell I'm doing when it comes to making a podcast. I am a dude with a laptop and a microphone, and that is basically the whole setup. So the reading, writing, recording, uh, finding clips and music, doing all the editing, it takes a ton of time. Uh, so to save my insanity and to make sure the train keeps running, I think I'm going to drop each episode length about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit more. So from here on out, you should expect probably, I don't know, maybe 35, maybe 40 minutes each. I know we were starting to trend a little bit longer, and then it's going to work in a seasonal format. So when we're done with Pollock, I'll take maybe three weeks, four weeks off to get the next artist worked up. And I've already selected the next artist, and it, it is in an absolutely insane story. And just a reminder, it's at Art Holes Podcast for the art that I mentioned in the show, and artholespodcast at gmail.com if you get bored and want to say hi, have an artist recommendation, or want to lodge a formal complaint that I will promptly ignore. So enough of the housekeeping. Uh, we have a jam-packed episode today full of shenanigans, uh, so let's pick the story back up. Now that Jackson was out of Bloomingdale's hospital and no longer in Dr. Wall's care, nobody was really under the impression that he didn't need continuous and ongoing therapy. And the therapist who was selected for him was a young and ambitious and unlicensed Jungian acolyte named Joseph Henderson. I can handle things! I'm smart! Not like everybody says! Like, dumb! I'm smart and I want respect! Henderson was educated and actually did some sort of fellowship thing with Carl Jung. And when Henderson met Jackson for their first session, he was fascinated by how artists, quote, fit the Jungian package. I'm already furious we're already fitting people into packages. And because Jungian psychology was not at all interested in the past, but about looking forward, Henderson didn't ask any questions about Jackson's childhood. He knew that Jackson was drinking, but ignored it as long as Jackson was being, quote, managed. Because Jung taught that as long as excessive drinking was managed, and, and we still can't say alcoholism yet, then, quote, emergence of the true self will be allowed. I fucking hate that guy. And since managing Jackson was Sandy's job, Henderson didn't really care. In Henderson's mind, we need to ignore everything we know about Jackson's childhood, and it's just clean slate moving forward. And I actually had someone email me and defend Jungian theories and say that's where we got the Myers-Briggs personality test from, which is not a strong argument because that fortune cookie on steroids is just completely made up bullshit. It was created by Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter Isabel Briggs Myers, who had absolutely no psychological or medical training. The test is fundamentally flawed in its creation out of nothing, lack of validity, lack of objectivity, profound confirmation bias, and when people take the test twice, up to 76% of them get different results. Even when the tests are taken only five weeks apart, you might as well tell people that you're part Ravenclaw and part Gryffindor. Get your shit together and read a book. Okay, unnecessary, aggressive rant is over. Uh, anyway, with, with Henderson's Jungian approach to therapy, until you did some forward-thinking talk, there's nothing really to do in therapy. So that's exactly what happened. The two of them just sat there in silence for a bunch of sessions until one day Jackson showed Henderson some of his art. And when Henderson saw Jackson's evolving art, he looked at it and was like, what the hell is this? And the dollar signs just showed up in this guy's eyes like it was a cartoon. Henderson was already spending that book money and going on lecture tours in his mind. Henderson thought Jackson's art was the key to his recovery, and also probably the key to his own fucking relentless self-promotion and ambition. 
So Henderson used Jackson's art during therapy sort of like a, a dream interpretation therapy. He assigned personality aspects to the colors Jackson used, thinking was blue, sensation was green, and they would interpret the images in weird ways, creating symbols for images and, and encouraging Jackson to pour himself into his art. Basically, it was fucking nonsense. Utter, utter nonsense. You know what green doesn't mean? Sensation. And how about discussing Leroy and Stella and his rage issues and where all that's coming from and the fact that he drinks so much I can smell the alcohol through the pages of the books. But no, they talked about blues and greens and all just nonsense. And Jackson loved these sessions because Henderson didn't make Jackson delve into anything uncomfortable. And his art was getting bolder and more raw. And it was just getting better and better. Even if that was at the expense of his own mental health. It was the art that mattered. The images and the feelings. All of that was being worked out visually on the, on the canvas. Because as that Jungian bullshit tells us, if Jackson's true self was to be an artist, then helping him become a great artist was helping Jackson become his true self. Eureka, we're gonna fix him. But that's not how that works. Your feelings are with you right before you go to sleep, and your brain just won't shut off. They're with you when you wake up, and you know you need to get out of bed, but you just can't manage to swing your legs over and take that first step. They're with you when you need to game plan just to make it through the day and the only mental note that you've made is to seek and destroy some bathtub gin. And people in Jackson's life, they noticed that this therapy was not going well for Jackson as a person. I, I forgot who it was, but someone in Jackson's life called up Henderson and was like, hey man, what the fuck are you guys doing in therapy? And Henderson was like, yeah, 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 we're all good here. He's right on track. And Jackson was never really surrounded by the best art teachers. Uh, famous, maybe, but not capital G great from a technical or innovative perspective. But that was meaning less now because we were getting more of just the raw him. And by 1939, Jackson was in a complete self-destructive cycle and continued in this spiral. He's now 27 at this point, and at 1939 terms, that's basically middle-aged. It's way different than a mess of a 27-year-old today. And on top of everything, there were now also some financial problems. The WPA and all of those social welfare programs, they were starting to be rolled back and artists were getting laid off. Sakaros and Jackson were no longer working together and Jackson eventually found a new art mentor in a guy named John Graham. Graham was sort of an out there Polish dude who was living in Russia but moved to New York to escape the Russian Revolution. And Graham was, in layman's terms I guess, just sorta nuts. I mean, he walked around naked in front of people all the time and was into alchemy and numerology. And one time Graham was introduced to a woman and he asked her, quote, Do you bleed much? Women bleed, you know, and I would love to see you bleed. Alright, this is, it's, it's weird. And he also liked to paint images of women with wounds on their necks and cheeks because, quote, All women should be wounded. Yeah, alright, that's a bit much. And I guess this idea that women needed to suffer for art, it's, it's something that's been around forever, but I don't think I realized how explicit it was historically. People would just come right out and say it. So when Graham and Jackson met, there was this immediate bond between the two. Graham loved the rawness in Jackson's art and thought he was, quote, kind of a bumpkin, but with a profound nature. And Graham loved Jackson and he brought him everywhere, kind of like a, a weird little pet. He was like a drunk little Pomeranian. And Graham being in New York was a huge deal at the time. Graham was incredibly talented and ran in the European art circles with Picasso and Matisse and was rapidly becoming the link between New York and Europe, which was the center of the Western art world. 
And I guess Graham's importance as far as him living in New York makes sense. It's not enough to see excellent and innovative art if you're an art student. You need to be taught the process, the theory, what works and what doesn't work. It's like anything else. You're not going to be a great golfer just by watching Tiger Woods golf, the pre-Perkins waitress Tiger. You need to learn the minutiae of the craft, and when you make a mistake or something doesn't work, it helps to be taught the theory behind your mistake and then move forward from there. And that's what Graham did for everyone in New York, and especially Jackson. Graham was the one who initially brought Picasso's influence into Jackson's life. I was stoked to see that we had some sort of crossover that was totally unplanned. I don't exactly have a sophisticated process for how the artists are chosen, except that they need to have interesting stories. George O'Keefe is in the top 10 on the list just because I want to know if the flowers are really vaginas or not. So most things in this show are going to be coincidental. But at this point in 1939-1940, to call Picasso an art god is probably an understatement. Art critics were actually worried that Picasso was destroying art because nobody would ever surpass his genius. His innovations and skill were ridiculous, and he kept changing and growing. The blue and rose periods that we covered in his origin story, that is nothing compared to what's coming next. And because nobody thought Picasso could be surpassed, everyone joined the bandwagon and they were painting Picassoid paintings. What we have to remember is, no matter how much of a purist an artist claims to be, art is a business. So if you couldn't afford an actual Picasso, someone would paint you something as similar as possible because their kids are hungry. And because Jackson was terrible at art, he had no ability to incorporate any of Picasso's skill and technique, and that actually probably saved him. Because then he would just be the shittiest version of what everybody else was trying to do. And we're actually going to talk about Picasso a bit more in the next episode, but right now, Jackson's takeaway from seeing and learning about Picasso from Graham was, was related to putting his subconscious on the page, the confessional aspect of Picasso's art. It's weird, Jackson was taking in art techniques this entire time, from Benton to Sakaros, now Graham, but he wasn't really doing it intellectually, it was almost instinctively. And Jackson was also digesting more abstract artists like Vasily Kandinsky, who was thought to be the first person to paint a purely abstract painting. Uh, this concept, Pollock's understanding that pure abstraction is a valid art form, is crucial to this story. People have been abstracting images for a while now. We covered this a little bit in Picasso's origin story in uh, episode 4. But Kandinsky was credited as being the first pure abstract painter, and I'm stressing the word credited. Pure abstraction was the, the complete abandonment of narrative illusion, representation, the images themselves. It's basically the painting not representing anything that's physically identifiable. And I'm going to post an image. Um, it's called Untitled, and it's from... Kandinsky said it was from 1910, but it was probably really from 1913. And it was originally thought to be the first pure abstract painting. And we know Kandinsky was the first pure abstract painter because Kandinsky told us he was the first abstract painter. But I follow the everyone is full of shit school of thought, so I dug around a little bit. And what I'm realizing about art history so far is that men were considered the artist and women were the subjects, which I, I guess is not surprising. But there's a growing school of thought that we should, you know, at least consider women's contribution to art beyond just sitting there naked and looking sad. So that said, we need to acknowledge Hilma F. Clint as being the first pure abstract artist. I'll post one of her paintings. It's called The Ten Biggest Number 7 from 1907. And some people consider 1907 to come before either 1910 or 1913. But what do I know? I'm just an idiot with a podcast. 
But getting back to Graham and Jackson, uh, their relationship was also characterized as Jackson getting a new older brother figure to emulate, a, a new Charles. And for his part, Graham saw in Jackson's art something that no one else saw. Quote, the seeds of genius. And it was also through Graham that Jackson met more contemporaries and there was a new art group forming in New York. And Jackson was also, of course, drinking excessively because Henderson was a worthless therapist. The other problem was John Graham was pulling Pollock away from the Art Students League and all the friends who would at least help keep his shit somewhat together, so Jackson was feeling more alone and isolated. He would go through prolonged silences where he'd be with people and only say like two words in an hour. In his new art crew in New York, they thought his silences were this quiet intellectualism. They don't know any of the stuff in his past. So while he is still a complete hot mess, Jackson's art is getting better and better with the influences of Graham and Henderson. But the only thing that wasn't happening was Jackson wasn't doing really well commercially with his art. Everyone around him was doing way better financially and their art was selling because it was more tangible and digestible for art critics and it's what people were used to, so it sold better. But Jackson was moving towards something different, only no one was really sure what. And I'm guessing because most people around him were way more well-adjusted and they had no idea someone could be this broken. And I also think that most people only really saw him drunk, so no one really saw him as a viable artist. None of his contemporaries really took him seriously. And I'm going to post a painting from around this time, this you know, when Graham and Henderson really had a hold of, of Jackson, and, and oof, it's just super uncomfortable to see. And, and I think if you, if you haven't checked out any of the art that I've posted, because you're, you're just more interested in the story than the art itself, I, I get it. I think ultimately I'm where you are. I, I'm more interested in people than art. But take a look at this painting, either on Instagram or, or just Google it. It's called Naked Man with a Knife, and the estimated date is anywhere between 1938 and 1941. And again, Jackson never really dated his paintings, which I think is a sign of someone with extraordinary self-worth issues in a, in a nobody-will-need-to-remember-this kind of way. The painting is of three naked men, one of whom has a knife and is standing over two cowering men. And we've thrown around the words psychologically charged and confessional, and I think this qualifies. Years later, art historians and critics were, they were unsure of the painting's true meaning. There was one art critic who thought it represented the violence of the Spanish Civil War, and, and others thought it was about World War II. But I have a theory. I have a theory that Jackson Pollock could give a shit less about the Spanish Civil War. Jackson had likely heard of the country of Spain. I'll give him that much. But Jackson's too handcuffed by his own psyche to paint an analysis and commentary of world affairs. His biggest concern was whether he'd wake up in an alley covered in other people's bodily waste. Even knowing next to nothing about art, that's just a ridiculous assessment. How about this? How about maybe that's an image of what a naked and afraid little boy wished he was on that train ride, maybe in life in general. Not naked and vulnerable, but on the attack, standing up for himself, fighting back, instilling the fear in others that he always felt. Again, an, an image like this is, for Jackson, it, it's very confessional. And by now in 1941, the U.S. was involved in World War II, but that Pandora's box is not part of our story. Because during Jackson's draft medical examination, the military took one look at him and they were like, yeah, we're gonna 4F you as being medically unqualified for war. Jackson was so obviously a mess that the government took one look at him and decided he couldn't even fight Hitler. So Jackson kept going through this daily routine of drinking 
buku amounts of liquor and trying to create art, waking up in alleys, getting into fistfights, then being dragged around by Graham who's hailing him as the next American art genius. And Jackson is just in freefall. That routine continues completely unabated and he is spiraling out of control. And sometime in November of 1941, a woman walked up the steps to Jackson's studio. We say studio, but it's really the apartment that Jackson is still sharing with Sandy and Arloy that's a a makeshift studio. And this young woman stared silently, took a breath, and then Lee Krasner knocked on Jackson Pollock's door. And for those of you who already know this story, you've probably been waiting for this moment. And honestly, Lee Krasner probably deserves her own series. She's absolutely fascinating from beginning to end. But right now we're going to go back for a few minutes, just like we did with Picasso and Jackson. Guys, we're going to meet some more parents. Lee Krasner's story starts at a place in time that rivals the American West in the mid-1800s as being the most absolutely absurd and shitty place in time. So tie your babushkas and have a bite of Vatrushka and Chicken Kiev, because we're headed to the Ukraine in the 1880s. Hell yeah, this place is a shithole. Around 1881 in the Ukraine, there was a massive anti-Semitic movement that was underway. When it wasn't just the Ukraine, it was all over Russia and those are-they-or-aren't-they Russian satellite countries. If you were Jewish and lived in the Ukraine at this time, not awesome. Because the Russian Orthodox Church was taken over by a group of, let's call them, intense dudes called the Holy Synod. They were also known as the most holy governing synod, which is both succinct and pretty arrogant. And this wave of anti-Semitism and murder that spread through Russia and Diet Russia, well, the most holy governing synod didn't really have a problem with it. So with a tacit understanding from God that killing Jewish people was cool, that shit spread like wildfire. A particularly bad incident occurred in a town called Kishinev in 1903. The level of anti-Semitic ass-hattery in Kishinev at the time was crazy. The town's most popular newspaper, the Besabarets, was constantly printing articles with titles like, quote, Death to the Jews and Crusade Against the Hated Race. And when that's the beginning of the story, it's gonna get bad. Early in April 1903, a young boy named Mikhail Rybachenko was murdered in a small town called Dubasari, which was about 25 miles north of Kishinev. And shortly after that, completely unrelated, a young girl poisoned herself, likely because it was an awful place and time to be alive, and she died in a Jewish hospital. You know, the place where Jewish people tried to save her life. But the Basabaret's newspaper, they decided these two completely unrelated events were indeed related, and both children were killed by the Jews for purposes of using their blood in preparation of matzah for Passover. You know, as the Jews do with their famous dead children matzah ball soup. And their bagels with a schmear and locks made out of, I guess, salt-cured dead children? I don't know, this is fucking ridiculous. And between that newspaper article and the Russian Orthodox bishop in the town, they basically triggered a riot that resulted in mass destruction of property, fires, countless rapes, and the murders of roughly 49 Jewish people. And I'm not going to explain why I'm saying roughly 49 because it's just going to piss me off. There was legitimately a debate about whether two of the deaths should count because everyone is awful. In these events, these massive violent outbreaks against Jewish people, they were so frequent that they had their own names. They were called pogroms, or pogroms. I don't know, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But regardless, Jewish families in Russia, they had enough, and people started bailing immediately, and many of them jumped on whatever ships they could, and they headed to America. 
This is one of those classic American immigrant stories, and it's amazing. Not what caused it, obviously, but the fact that we had our arms open. Now, if this story sounds at all familiar, it may be because you're old enough to remember the 1986 Don Bluth animated classic An American Tale, a movie about the Mauskowitzes, a family of Jewish mice who fled the Ukraine in 1885 due to anti-Semitism and made their way to America where they were told there were no cats and the streets were paved with cheese. But the Mauskowitzes got separated in their journey, had to regroup in America where they found out, spoiler alert, we have cats. As an Italian-American, I was slightly offended at the portrayal of Tony Tapponi, the streetwise but slightly intellectually challenged Italian-American mouse, friend of Ivo Mouskowitz, but what are you gonna do? Basically, Lee Krasner's family was living the movie in American Tale. Lee wasn't born yet, but as of the early 1900s, there was Joseph and Anna Krasner and a bunch of kids. And the Krasners started to piecemeal move to America after the Kishinev pogrom until finally the entire family escaped to New York City in 1908. Anna Krasner was a no-shit-taking pragmatic woman who was all business. She was married at 11 years old to Joseph Krasner, and by the time Anna was 20, she had birthed five children. Five! Anna could also put together a basketball team by the time she was 20. You know how I feel about the obstetrics and gynecological situation back then? We don't need to get into it again. But Team Krasner unfortunately needed to reload, either in free agency or the draft, because one of the kids died. I'm guessing it was the power forward and increasingly disappearing position in the NBA. At this point in the Krasner family, there were now three girls, Edith, Esther, and Rose, and a boy named Izzy, later called Irving. And if you're wondering why he wasn't named Irving and called Izzy for short, don't worry, we're going to talk about it soon. As a father, Joseph was described as very distant. He spent most of his time at the synagogue if he wasn't working, so Joseph's not really around that much. As a mother, Anna was described as having a violent temper, and she was a screamer, and she would often reduce her children to tears with constant verbal abuse. No wire hangers ever! She was also obsessed with the spirit world, curses, and mysticism. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria! So, that's not good. Let me tell you what's not good for a kid's development. Constant screaming, abandonment, and curses from God and ghosts and shit. And on October 27, 1908, Lena Krasner was born, who everyone called Lee. But by the time Lee was born, the Krasner family was already falling apart. Lee's older sisters were approaching a marriageable age, which honestly at that point could be like 9 years old, who knows. And the oldest brother, Izzy, well, Iz Izzy was having some problems with his role in the family. He was the oldest, and he didn't want to be treated like a son anymore. And because the rest of the kids were older, compared to Lee, who's only like three years old at this point, the house was full of a bunch of people coming and going in a tornado of a shanty apartment in New York City. It was crazy hectic. Joseph, who was barely present, was around just enough to knock up Anna one more time. And the Krasners had one more daughter named Ruth, who was described as much prettier than Lee, which is a terrible thing to say. But of course that meant that Ruth became Anna's favorite immediately. 
And I do think we almost reflexively describe women by their looks way too much, but it does make sense to do so here because it really did alter the family dynamic. All of the Krasner kids were, in Lee included, let's say not traditionally attractive. Then Ruth comes along and Crazy Anna finally has a pretty young daughter to show off. So Ruth became the favorite right away, leaving Lee abandoned emotionally by her mother because for Anna, it's all about Ruth right now. And with Joseph not really around and Anna doting over Ruth and treating her like she was the last stop in a Russian nesting doll situation, at three years old, Lee was pretty much on her own and as a small child was instinctively looking for some sort of older authority figure. And she found it in her brother Izzy, who now demanded to be called Irving. Because with Joseph never being there, Irving... Irving sort of liked the idea of playing the father role. Irving wanted to become dad. Not a dad, like in the future with a family of his own. The dad of this family. And as creepy as shit as this is, Anna sort of leaned into it, and she started to treat her son like it was her husband, which just makes my skin crawl. Irving had completely taken over the household and was the only source of domestic authority for Lee in the absence of Joseph, who was basically gone at this point. I mean, like 100% gone. And Irving was not only verbally abusive towards all the girls, he beat the holy hell out of them for any perceived infraction. Irving absolutely tormented the family, but he was also the only form of attention for Lee, and she loved him. She would always follow Irving around, trying to get him to read to her, and she copied everything that Irving did. When Irving renounced Judaism, so did Lee. She took on his mannerisms, his confrontational style, and she never gave in. So with neither of them backing down, Lee and Irving slash new dad battled all the time. It was an incredibly dysfunctional situation. If you're picking fights with your brother slash dad in order for him to pay attention to you rather than your more attractive younger sister, and his abusive wrath is the parental affection you seek out, that's, I don't know man, I feel like you're sort of fucked at that point. It's probably not what's best for your emotional orientation and understanding of what constitutes a healthy relationship moving forward. And growing up, Lee was incredibly rebellious, but not just against Irving. She also rebelled against cultural and gender expectations. She didn't want to be a shop girl or a nice Jewish housewife. She wanted to be loud and bold and have opinions, and Lee also wanted to be an artist, which she thought was akin to leaping into the abyss without anything to cushion your fall. And in 1925, Lee was accepted into the Women's Art School of the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. Apparently, we used to be terrible at naming everything, not just people. Lee basically had the same tract as Jackson did making her way through art school, doing odds and ends jobs while trying to find a mentor, learning new techniques and styles, things like that. But unlike Jackson, Lee was incredibly talented as an artist. In 1928, she was accepted into the National Academy of Design, one of the most important art schools in America at the time. And for a comparative time reference, this is around the same time that Jackson was going to the Manual Arts High School, just drunk punching PE teachers in the face. Now that she was in the National Academy of Design, Lee constantly butted heads with her teachers. She was suspended at one point, and another time she led a student coup against the teachers. I, I gotta be honest, I sort of love her already. One of Lee's friends in art school was a guy named Igor Pantuhoff, who Lee fell head over heels in love with. Igor was tall, handsome, worldly, he had money, and he was also an absolute asshole and raging alcoholic. Someone said of Igor, quote, I've never seen anybody drink so much and live. Another of Igor's friends said of him, quote, There was something off about Igor. And Lee basically lost her identity in this relationship with Igor. She dressed the way he wanted. She even changed the way she danced for him. Lee also quit painting, which sucks because that's what she wanted to do with her life. And she more or less just took care of Igor and supported his artistic career. 
And Lee was a crazy talented artist, way more so than Igor, and she was basically operating as this dickhead's assistant. And Lee's devotion went well beyond the professional. In their personal life, Lee was constantly making excuses for him. If Igor got ungodly drunk and caused a scene, it was everybody else's fault but Igor's. She was basically reliving the same pattern as her life with Irving, her dad-slash-brother. It's this poisonous, abusive relationship where she gives everything just for his approval. She told everyone they were married, even though they weren't, so that whole thing is a bummer. And in 1934, Lee's awesomeness got the best of her, and despite herself and all of her shit, she got the urge to paint again. And she eventually found a mentor named Hans Hoffman. For someone like Hans Hoffman to take on a protege like Lee says more about Lee's talent than it does about Hans's bucking of the trend of men dominating art. Hoffman and Lee battled basically the entire time of their professional relationship, because he was a shithead who didn't like women, and she would never back down. So now Lee's life was learning about art from a schmuck whose approval she secretly sought out, and life with a drunken asshole who turned out to be constantly cheating on her. But because she's painting again, Lee was unable to devote as much time and energy to Igor, and he did not like this development. It was around 1937 that Lee's art started to get more notice, while Igor's career was on the decline. And the more well-known, the more well-respected Lee became in New York, the more Igor looked like a schlub. It was almost an inverse relationship situation. And that made Igor withdraw even more, and he began to drink beyond excess over the next year or so, fully resenting Lee's success. And then in 1939, without any hints, signs, nothing, Igor just disappeared and left Lee. Confrontation, yelling, she could handle that because Irving taught her that was okay. But abandonment, that was her relationship with her father all over again, and it destroyed her. And over the next few years, Lee threw herself into different causes and community projects. It's that thing we all do after a terrible breakup. It's like, oh, I'm going to take up spinning my own pottery, or I'm going to try graphic design for a while. That'll help me forget how much I'm in pain right now. She joined the American Abstract Artist Movement, which was a growing movement under the artist uh, Pete Mondrian, who was another Hilma F. Clint Kandinsky type. But unfortunately, Lee's emotional and psychological takeaway from the Igor situation was probably not the best conclusion. In her mind, the years she spent with Igor when she supported his career, they were at least somewhat happy. But when she competed with Igor, and she saw that competition as causing his abandonment, that was unbearable. So I guess it was a, a thing where she weighed the pain? It's, it's not a good calculus. And moving forward in this series, I think Lee is a very good person, and she's professionally savvy, and from what I can gather, she turns into a great artist, but she is an emotional mess. So in November of 1941, when Lee Krasner was ready to find a potential partner, and with all of that in her past, she was standing on the steps of Jackson Pollock's studio. She took a breath and knocked on the door of someone she'd already met before. In 1936, Lee Krasner was at an artist union Christmas party, having a great time dancing with some nice young man. When a beyond drunk little monster stumbled up to her, asked her if she liked to fuck, and dry humped her leg until she slapped him in the mouth. The same young man Lee Krasner would later go home and spend the night with, Paul Jackson Pollock. Guys, holy shit. 
I don't know about you, but this story is very exhausting and also incredibly satisfying at the same time. I'm very confused. So tune in next episode to see how this mulligan of a meat cute goes. If you like the story so far, do me a favor, shoot down in whatever podcast app you're using and throw me five stars. Honestly, you're going to get the next episode regardless of how many reviews I get. I could really care less personally, but it's the way that iTunes measures engagement and it helps get the, uh, the word out on the show. Uh, so take care, everybody, and I will talk to you next episode.